Hello and welcome back to On the Battlefield with Father Michael Marcantoni and me, Father Joseph Collins, where we are sharing the Christian message of hope and endurance amidst the struggles and suffering of life. So, Father Michael, why don't you tell everyone in podcast land where they can find us online and on social media, please? Yes, thank you. Uh, Excellent. So we can be found, of course, on Anchor FM, which is our main sharing site, and that shares out over to to a variety of platforms, Spotify, uh, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and of course on social media, uh, Facebook, On the Battlefield, Podcasts, as well as Instagram. And do reach out to us. We do read your comments, and we appreciate making it a discussion. So look for us at On the Battlefield on Anchor FM, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on social media on the Battlefield Podcast. Yeah, and today we talk about being prepared, but from a very specific direction. Father, why don't you give us the lead in on that? Yeah, so I one of the things that we've been discussing in these last several episodes is we've been really discussing the reality of spiritual warfare as the basic framework, not only for human life, but for the Christian life. That this is not something extra that happens on top of the repertoire that God gives us, but this is the motif of creation and salvation. You know, Christ himself says that he has come to destroy the works of the devil. Um, And then, of course, as Orthodox Christians, we've just got through Holy Week going on two weeks ago now, and all of the language of Holy Week is in that same vein of uh, of the tyrant being overthrown and people being liberated from uh, from the depths of Hades. And in fact, even the New Testament says uh, that Christ descended into the lower realms, leading uh, leading the captives to liberty and taking captivity captive. So you have sort of this siege imagery. And so that what that bespeaks of, it bespeaks of a universe where God isn't asking us to just be kinder, nicer, more moral. There is an ongoing struggle between good and evil into which human beings are thrust, which is why there is no neutral ground in our spiritual or personal lives. There's no such thing as my real life over there and my religious life over here. Uh, And as a matter of fact, uh, the dichotomy between the spiritual life and the everyday would have seemed nonsensical at any other period in history uh, until you get to this last 250 years or so. And not so if we're, if we're thrust into that, then we've got to look at, well, what does God do to get humanity prepped for it? And the reality is that scripture starts out talking about that very preparatory state. And it does it in a way that is not obvious, but I think that I think that once we realize that's happening, it'll make the first book of scripture kind of make a lot more sense than it previously has. So basically when you're looking at, right, so you're looking, we've mentioned several times and we keep coming back to Genesis, but the reason that we do, the reason that we do is because God in his infinite sovereignty and wisdom and mercy actually can't be derailed. I think one of the biggest problems in most Christian theology is we treat it like God's plan got derailed and now he has to figure something out, which is simply not the case. You can't derail God. Um, His ultimate plan, when this is the reason for uh, the devil's envy, his ultimate plan is to be united to human beings. The incarnation was always going to happen. Now, the necessity to, uh, the necessity to, uh, to atone and redeem redeem us at the cross and the empty tomb, yeah, that happens perhaps as a response to uh, man's sin, or that creates the context in which those events play out. But the idea that the second person of the Trinity would take flesh, that's eschatological. That's always there. That's always on the table. Uh, it's why St. John can say in the last book of Scripture in the Apocalypse that he is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Well, you know, 33 AD isn't before the foundation of the world, unless, of course, you posit that this is a an, a, an eschatological reality that breaks into time at that event. However, mm-hmm. 
that God was always going to be united to us in a special way was always there. So that's not derailed at all. Well, so when you look at Genesis, you see something very interesting happen. So the anthropos, the human being is formed and God breathes life into it. And then the text says, and then God planted a garden eastward in Eden and then placed the human being there, then placed the anthropos there. Um, and once he does place him there, right, he gives him, he, he, God has, we've already seen God order and subdue the chaos, right? The earth is formless and void. He subdues it, gives it form, waters above, waters below, uh, gives it, fills it. It's no longer void, you know, animals, plants, stars, the angelic host, so forth. And then Adam starts to get practice doing that. God brings before him the wild beasts and he puts them in order. He subdues them. He gives them names. So the first thing Adam has to do is subdue the chaos, right? He has, So he's getting practice being part of God's governance and being God's uh, image and likeness on earth. So where does that take place? Well, it takes place in this garden. As we said, God plants it eastward in Eden. He places the man there. So that means that the garden doesn't already cover the whole earth because otherwise he would have to place him there. And it doesn't cover the whole earth because he already had to, he had to go plant it, which means human beings were made before it was planted. That's what Genesis says. And if it's planted in the end, they have to be exiled somewhere. So there's something outside of it, which means it has borders, it has boundaries, it is a self-enclosed environment. So you have this self-enclosed environment where Adam is learning how to be the image and likeness. Um, where else do we see that? Given that so few, proportionally so few of our citizens go through military training, for those of us who have, it looks a lot like a basic training environment. You have a self-enclosed environment, which is set up as ideal to its purposes, right? Like the, like if you go to a training post, things on the training end of a training post are set up ideally for basic training. There are things there that like at a normal garrison post wouldn't need to be there because you, you're already past that stage. So things are set up. You have the you have the training environment set up to, when I say ideal, I don't mean pleasant. I mean, according to exactly what you need. You don't have to go out and find it. Everything's right there, um, which, you know, that's what you see in paradise. Everything is right there. Uh, the, the, the new soldier is clothed. Clothing is provided all the way down to your socks. Like you don't even take in, you know, you don't even get to keep your old socks and undershirts. Like even that stuff is provided everything. Um, you know, and we see Adam and Eve, they're, they're clothed, right? They're, well, I mean, after the fall, but nonetheless, right? They're provided for in that way. They're fed in a training environment. You don't have to look for your own food. God provides them food. So he gives his own, he gives his image and likeness, food, shelter, clothing, an environment in which they're learning to do what he needs them to do. And that's what gets derailed. So what you're looking at when when what what I what I want us to encourage us to look at is to look at the Eden narrative as you're seeing God getting humanity ready to enter into this conflict with the illegitimate rebellious spiritual powers that the spiritual war is on and he is being prepped for it in if you want to weaken a military force interrupting their training and making them unprepared is a great tactic but you'll notice right that god kind of continues to create those idealized um, specialized environments to prep his people the nation of israel you know, they're, they're out in the wilderness. They're alone with God. They have the tabernacle. The temple is set up much like paradise. And with uh, paradise, if you read Second Kings, it's got image, imagery from paradise all over the walls. The art walls are covered with carvings and iconography that hearken back to uh, paradise and the creation. And, and we look at even the Levitical system as preparatory for the gospel. You're being prepared for something. Um. And if we treat it as such, I think that that really shifts the way we look at our relationship with God and his commandments. If suddenly we're being, we're treating it as, oh, he is prepping us for something as opposed to we're being asked to do a bunch of stuff and we don't get why. Um, and so I want to look at that. 
I want to look at this. I want to look at not only paradise as a training environment, but then by extension, now that we don't live in paradise, how are our homes with their iconostasia and our marriages and our parishes, everything takes on that character. So paradise was a, a training ground of sorts where man was being prepared for perfect union with God, but it was over the course of time that that would happen. But we obviously failed and were exiled from the garden and placed into the world and into a place where that training ground was now no longer a place of of union and ease and literally walking with God, but now struggling with the suffering and coping with the anxieties and the hardships of life and having to get to God by means of those things, which is a beautiful forward-looking aspect of what happened because in the church now the suffering is is a part of us being brought into that into the paradise but not paradise of adam and eve but the paradise created by jesus christ by means of his own suffering on the cross is is that what you're getting at that the that the church and our homes and life is now is in a way a paradise but a paradise of of suffering on behalf of the other and in Christ in order to attain paradise in 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 God's time in the future. Is that what I hear you saying? Yeah. So when you look at the apocalypse of John, um God tell God speaks of humanity as reigning with Christ. He tells the, you know, the apostles that they're, Christ tells his apostles in the gospels that they're going to judge the nations of Israel and, uh, you know, <clears throat> and that they'll, ju- and the, the elders and so forth on the thrones in, in the revelation are given charge to rule over the nations with Christ. And so there's this idea that there's, when we take really seriously what, oh, and, and even Paul in his, even Paul in his, um, epistle says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? Well, that's not saying you're a good angel, you're a bad angel. The The word for to judge in uh, in Hebrew is mishpat, uh, is judgment or, or righteousness. And those are the same thing in Hebrew. And what that means is to set things in order according to God's will. It's not like just a saying, okay, that's good, that's bad. It's a setting things in order. It's having a sovereignty over what the 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 unordered the formless and void that's in front of you to where you can set it in order. But you've got to know what God's will is. You've got to be able to exercise um, that authority competently. And that what we're the image we're left with within Revelation is that that ends up being an, a, an ongoing thing that flows into eternity somehow in ways that we don't fully understand. So what i would say is we're we're looking at we're looking at human beings being prepared here and now not just to go sit on a cloud and strum a harp and 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 chill for a timeless eon but instead to go and to spend the rest of eternity sharing in Christ's work in his governance in his creation um and that's that's what we're that's what we're called to do so like if you think about the various passions and sins that we're asked to that we're asked to subdue you know the unruliness uh, of our flesh or our appetites or our hungers um if all of those sort of extreme imbalances because saint maximus says nothing is created evil so you know your your appetites your hungers aren't evil. It's the imbalance. It's the misuse, as he would put it, that is the sin and is the problem. And if we're being trained to do that, to 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 have ingratia, self-mastery over that, that's the word that's used for the gift of the Holy Spirit, not just self-control, but ingratia, ingratao, to, to have sovereignty over oneself. If we're being trained to do that, then it, it's, it very really points towards a world 
where those lessons must then be applicable to the task that we are then going to perform. Um, I mean, you look at like <clears throat> you you and and the task doesn't always make sense with the end game. So, well, not on its surface. So, like one of the activities that was my least favorite in the army, um, and I still don't do it because I don't like it, is running. Um, and you know, you'll go on these six mile runs and these 10 mile runs, you're not running 10 miles on a battlefield like that, that doesn't happen. But you do need to have enough lower body flexibility, durability and enough stamina to move quickly for some distance and probably carrying gear. Um, so when you're so it would it wouldn't make a lot of sense for someone to say, well, I'm not, well, not going to go for a 10 mile run in formation on a battlefield. Why should I do it here? Well, when you're, when you're good enough at running that you can sprint uh, around city blocks in, in Baghdad, taking cover and running from cover to cover and move fast because you've had practice moving fast. And all of those formation drills make sense because now you have uh, practice moving in unison with one another and in cooperation with one another. And now you can now maneuvering on a battlefield together is a little bit easier because it's something you've been doing. Then that stuff makes sense. So the other thing about training environment is the tool isn't always um, copy and paste for the task you've got to do later. So, you know, so I, I think that helps look at our metaphor because if we're looking and saying, well, this is what I'm training to do, I'm training to do some kind of governance with Christ, and yet I'm being asked to govern these very basic things. Let's remember his words, you know, good and faithful servant, because you have been faithful over a little, I will give you charge over much. And then we're we're careless about that little, which is why we don't see much. So kind of the opposite of of what I hear you saying, just to create a fuller picture in my own mind, what I hear you saying that the opposite of basic training, I mean, basic training is doing a whole host of things that you may not understand in the moment that are ridiculously hard at times, that a number of things that you may or may not want to do at times that you don't want to do them at the behest of another person. It's extremely pedantic. Like you, you're really you, you get treated like you don't know what you're doing because you don't. <laughs> but the opposite of that is modern American life in a way. I mean, sit in front of the TV for six hours after work, um, eat what you want, do what you want, say what you want, think what you want, post what you want. Just kind of this insane flexibility, and it's gotten. Worse, as you see, I, I mean, this is crazy, but like in my home state of Wyoming, our governor, along with other governors, has just said that they're not taking any more uh, unemployment money from the government because people are not going back to work. Even though states are open, it, they're, they're finding that it's easier just to stay home and play video games and let the government pay for my for my bills. And this this will perpetuate a life where you're not ready for anything at all. You're just, you're on the dole, I guess. You're, you just become useless to yourself and to your fellow man and to your country. And that, that seems to be the opposite of the, the training ground that, that we're creating a picture of uh, with God in Eden and now us currently in the church. Would that be accurate, Father Michael? Yeah, I'd say so. Uh, I, I definitely say so because the quickest way, right? Like the other thing that happens, what a lot of people would know, what what your average eighteen year old in basic training, because that that is your average basic training. Um, you do get some guys like you'll get some guys that are quote unquote the old guys and they're like twenty eight, <laughs> but um, the which is funny to me now. Uh, but for you know your average training is like eighteen, nineteen. And what they don't realize is as much as the army looks like it's trying to break you, it wants you to succeed. 
like the fact that they've placed you there, they've already started to invest resources in you. They want you to pass. They want you to succeed. Um, so you're the, the quickest way to not succeed and to like, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to actually make an effort to fail, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, you know, barring injury or so forth. And the, the quickest way to do that is to act like you don't need to be told what to do. Like, like, you know, it already, you're already the subject matter expert, you know, better, and they can't tell you what to do. And so you, you close yourself off because like, I don't need that. I'm good. I've got it. Uh, I already know this, that, or the other. Um, the hardest guys to teach marksmanship are, uh, dudes who grew up with rifles, actually. Um, we had this, there's something called in, in army marksmanship, Kentucky windage, which is you, you want to avoid that. And that's where you're, you're applying what you learned on your dad's hunting rifle to the, to the, uh, to your service rifle. And it's not the same animal. And so it's actually easier to take someone who just comes in and says, you know, I've never handled a firearm before and just start from scratch. than is someone who thinks they already know what they're doing. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been, I've been shooting my whole life. I know what to do. Um, and that might be a little different now because like, um, indoor ranges and stuff are much more prevalent than they were today than like when I was a kid. And when I've gone to them, you know, they've got a variety uh, of firearms. So, I mean, I think if enthusiasts today might be a little better prepared than, uh, than we were, but the, the idea is still the same. The, the notion that you already know what's best and therefore are therefore can contradict the very authority that you've come to for training um that lack of humility makes you uncoachable and makes you untrainable and those people fail um and we do that in the spiritual life we ask god to make us holy we ask us to unite him with him we ask us to make us him we ask him to make us sons of god which by the way Apart from human beings, that gets atta- that gets applied in scripture to angels, and of course, they're involved in the governance and protection and ordering of creation. Um, so we're we're asking for all that, and then God says, "Cool." In order to prep you for that, I need you to live this way, and we sort of say, mm, "I think I know best," or our version of that is, "Well, God will understand. God knows. God," knows. and and we make a lot of presumptions on God being okay with stuff that He kind of said He's not okay with. You know, it's, I mean, and it's like, even in ba- like once you get out into garrison, once you get out into garrison, I mean, you can eat whatever you want, right? As long as you are able to uh, make your height weight for your, for your physical fitness test, but you can serve, you can consume whatever you'd like food wise in training. It's very limited. And uh, there are certain options, which Kind of like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, certain options which are not bad in and of themselves, but they are off limits to you if you know what's good for you. So there will be pie served in the defect. You will be made to pay royally if you have the pie, if you get the fried fish. Th- those choices are there. The drill sergeants can have them. Um, you're a, you can reach out your hand and take them to yourself. You're going to pay because that's not what you need. That's not the fuel. That's not the right fuel for the training you're undergoing. Once you're, once you've undergone that training and you've become what you need to become and you go out into garrison, you can have the pie if you want. And no one's going to say a word to you. You just better be able to make height weight when your physical fitness test comes around. So look at that. I mean, even pedantic limitations on what you can consume because it because the ones training you understand where you need to head better than you do because you've never headed there um and and no like that's that's not what you need right now and you're not going to get sat down and get some long philosophical explanation as to why you don't have the oreos you just you, you better not have them right now. And then once it's done, it makes a lot of sense in hindsight. You're like, yeah, you, you really don't want to have those Oreos. Um, so again, the pedantic nature of a training environment for a purpose, I think it makes Gen- it makes Eden make a lot of sense. It makes Eden make a lot of sense. Uh, if you're looking, going on the outside wall, there is rebellious spiritual powers of chaos that there's the nahash the serpent that there are these things 
that that would there are these things that for their own reasons would rather see humanity not prepared to take them on yeah so when we enter lent and we say to ourselves well you know what it's really hard to be an orthodox christian uh, in America and and fast in the way that we're required to fast, uh, especially when our Lent is some is uh, our Pascha or Easter is twenty eight days after Western Easter. You know, so instead of keeping the the strict fast, I'm going to kind of modify it and do it my own way. I see a lot of people do that, and it's easy to do. I mean, the United States is not Greece or the Mediterranean. We do not eat the same foods. We do not have the same means of fasting over the course of two millennia. And our society does not cater to us. It doesn't care. It doesn't even hardly know where we exist. If we're lucky, we're 1% of the entire population of the United States, which I think is a very generous offering at 1%. It's probably significantly less than that. But that's a really good example. You know, it's like if the if my basic training, uh, if my master, the church, tells me do this because it's for your benefit, it's, it's to get you through this aspect of your training, and it's for your spiritual benefit so that you can go out onto the battlefield and kick some butt. And we're not taking names, we're just kicking butt. But I don't do it because I say, well, it's too hard, or the church doesn't really know what it's doing, and I'm going to make my own fast. I've, I've actually hurt myself, and I've hurt my team, and I didn't even really recognize it because I thought that my trainer was a jerk and an idiot, right? Like you were saying about marksmanship and all these other things. And the minute we think that we know better, we've placed ourselves into a, a place of pride, and we, we hurt ourselves and those around us, you know, no, no matter what the argument is that you can make. I mean, yeah, we, like I said, we could argue legitimately that the bishops need to help us fast here in the United States according to what we eat, how we eat it, and why. It's a different climate. It's a different people. We know that the Russians do it a little differently, and the people up in Scandinavia have done it differently, but that's up to the bishops, not us. And until the bishops do something like that, we do what the church tells us, as hard as it is, as expensive as it is, as inconvenient as it is, because fasting is intended to be inconvenient to teach you lessons and to prepare you for times ahead and for the spiritual things that you can learn. And, you know, I mean, there you go. It's pretty analogous. Well, yeah, and the 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 idea of, the you know, the the humility that goes into, you know, being, shaving your head, waking up on someone else's schedule, putting on a uniform, it takes a lot of humility. Like you got to set yourself aside. That's the core of service you're doing for others. And that produces the men and women that we, we really lionize. I mean, cultures across the world lionize the warrior ideal, you know, like even down to we import it into our sports teams and everything else. Um, you know, and work out boot camps. And, you know, we import, we have businessmen reading Miyamoto Musashi's Book of Five Rings. There, there, there's something about the warrior ideal that we love across the board. It inspires us. And part of the reason it does that is it's rooted in not just service, but the strength and capacity to serve where others cannot. And that doesn't happen if you're full of pride and envy and doing it your own way, you've got to be humble enough to set your own stuff aside and get broke and taught. Um, and there's a, and, and the other thing too is, so are training methods ever revised? The answer is yes. Like when, when humankind rocks out of Eden, God revises the methodology by which he brings us back into being his sons. You know, uh, there's the covenants, there's Abraham, there's the Exodus, there's the nation of Israel, there's the gospel, he, he, but he's still, the end goal is still his, it, end goal of making us his sons hasn't changed. Um, training methods are revised. Like you do get, you know, the the uh, the army trade the army uh, training and, and, do, and indoctrination command, 
uh, training and doctrine command, excuse me, training and doctrine command that, you know, the people doing the training do advise the command and methodologies and practices and nutrition and all of those things are constantly under review. We're not doing it the way we did in the 80s or the 40s or the 50s or the 60s. In some ways, we've lost some good things. In some ways, we've improved. But all that stuff is under review all the time in order to create a – with the idea of creating a better prepared soldier. Um, again, sometimes you know, you'll see – and I'm officially one of the old timers now. But you, you'll officially see you – know, you'll see people look back and say, oh, we did that better in my day. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes it isn't. It's a it's a flawed human system. However, comma, um, the trainees aren't the one making those calls. The trainees aren't filling out a survey and saying, "Here's what we'd like to see." No, you have competent soldiers who have experience and who understand the outcomes needed and the skills needed, uh, advising the chain of command in a proper way to improve, at least ideally to improve the training offered for future generations. The one who doesn't get to do that is the one undergoing it though. Um, and now, are there ever adjustments made it? Yes, when absolutely necessary. Kind of like how a spiritual father may adjust fasting uh, for your medical needs. Like the, the fasting diet can end up being a little carb heavy because we're removing all these proteins. Well, I mean, if you've got like, uh, you know, a high blood pressure type two diabetic with real specific dietary needs, a spiritual father is going to take that into account. It's not because they don't want to fast. It's because you don't want them to die. And similarly, um, soldiers are given profiles. Like if they, they have a medical necessity to why they can't do, they can't undertake this the way everyone else is undertaking it. They'll be given a medical profile that has to be respected. But they're still given something. It's like, well, you can't do this and this, but you can do these things. And you will be doing those things so that the training still takes place. Um, so it's not, it's not the one size fit all top down. But again, the one making those adjustments isn't the one undergoing it. Um, the one undergoing it needs to have a certain amount of humility. And and that's where real engratia, real self-mastery, self-control, the engrata, the mastery over oneself, the sovereignty over oneself really comes in. Saying, I don't know best, but do I trust? And and so the, the thing the devil breaks down in garden is the trust. They have been given a command. You know, all right, you're you're subduing, you're subduing the chaos. You have the very wild beasts, chaos itself, and you are subduing them. You're getting practice doing that. You're naming these things. You're putting them in order. You're now sovereign here. All right. Can you now apply some of that over to your, you've, you've expected these hungry wild beasts to obey you. Can you, the hungry wild beast within you, obey? Let's see. Don't eat from this one thing for a while. But the first thing the devil does is erode the trust. It's like you can't trust the one training you. He doesn't know. God knows that if you eat it, you won't die. Your 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 trainer is untrustworthy. I mean, that's re- that's really where the first jab gets in. God is untrustworthy, and then uh, you know that comes over into Adam's complaint against Eve and God. The woman you gave me caused you to eat, and the woman says, "The serpent you made." Uh, tricked me. So it's uh, God and the things he's made. And so now there's all this distrust formed. Well, in English, that's this, that's trust and faith are different words. But in, in Greek, the word to trust and the word for faith are the same. So it's like you, you've, we, we just had Thomas Sunday where we're, be, we're told to not to be apistis, uh, un, uh, unbe, unfaithful, or uh, not having faith, unbelieving, but to be pisti having faith, having belief. Well, that's the same as trust. So it's like that, that's, that's the real key thing. And make no mistake, like in basic training, you're, you are trusting people with your lives. You're doing dangerous stuff that you've never done before, that if it's not done properly, someone could get seriously hurt or killed. That happens. But because they're trustworthy, it happens rarely. You almost never hear about it. Could you imagine taking just a couple hundred random late teenagers and giving them uh, a crazy amount of firepower and and 
helping them use it and there's almost no accidents, there's very few accidents. Why is that? It's because the people undergoing the training are trustworthy and have the procedures in place to keep you safe. They're not nice about it though. Um, they, but they're not nice about it because they take what they're doing with a life and death seriousness. You keep your stinking Kevlar on or you might get hurt. Um, and once you get through it, you're like, oh, I'm actually kind of glad that they screamed in my face and made sure that there was no way I would even consider taking this off. Um, I mean, like some of those drills are really dangerous. Like we had a, I remember back in Fort Knox in basic training, we had a move and cover drill where we were in, we were moving down a range with pop-up targets and one person was running diagonally was to cover and the other one was providing cover fire. You better not shoot each other. <laughs> I mean, if again, it's a, it was a dangerous, it was an excellent exercise. It was exactly the kind of thing you need on a battlefield, it's, but it was highly dangerous. You better have been well disciplined and trained to look and be sure of your target before you squeeze that trigger. Well, again, that safely doing that with hundreds and hundreds of young foolish kids every day only becomes possible if you've really got the procedures down to make that safe. If you've really got the procedures down to make that something that sounds like a good idea. Um, and you can't do that if you don't trust the, the trainer, the, the, the drill sergeant has to trust you with your weapons and tactics and you have to trust them with your gear and who they're putting with who and when, and when they say, if they say stop, it is stop. <laughs> if they say go now, it is go now. You've got to trust them. Um, so like, look at how, I mean, even again, Getting into just so, just like those people who sort of rock themselves out of basic by thinking they know better because they can't trust the trainer. Um, that's the first thing the devil does. You can't trust this God who's told you to not do this thing right now. We were at St. Basil Academy in New York. Archbishop Demetrios came and he, he was talking about the children and he quoted from I, I think it's in Matthew where he says uh, truly I tell you unless you become like little children you will not enter the kingdom of heaven he he said that he said and we we know that Jesus wasn't talking about be like little children because children are always angels he said no they're not angels we know that we know better so what did Jesus mean and he said it's Jesus meant to be like a little child because children trust Children trust their parents. I mean, unless you have a parent who's a complete sociopath and has eroded the trust of a small child, which is very difficult to do, children implicitly trust their parents and those who are in positions of authority in their life. And Jesus is saying, you have to trust me and you have to trust God the way a child trusts mom and dad or grandma and grandpa. And like you said, that trust especially in Greek, that the word for trust is always used transitively. Um, in grammar, a transitive verb requires a direct object. It ha there has to be something to trust in, right? It's not, and then you have non-transitive verbs, which mean there, there's no one to trust in. Like, I trust that I have shoes on right now. That's a, that is intransitive. But if I say I trust my car dealer, that means that I trust the guy who's selling me a car, that he's going to give me a good price, that he's going to give me a good product, and that he's going to back that product up no matter what. And we have to have that kind of trust in God and in the church and in the leaders that we have over us. And that that's really important to the process is actually trusting the one in authority and leadership over you. And, you know, even our bishops, even if they're, they're, they're wonderful in many, many ways. And we as human beings, when we start to attack our bishops and we start to attack our leaders, like Satan did in the garden, when he was attacking God and say, did he really say that? Can you really trust that that's what he meant? What does he do now to us? Well, look at your bishop. 
Look at all of his weaknesses. But he, but he veils from you how hard he hammers your bishop, how much he hates your bishop, how much he hates all of the bishops, and how much the demons attack the bishops day in and day out. And we forget that they're humans. We expect them to make perfect decisions according to our will and what we think should happen in the church with limited information, with limited power, and, and we don't even have the ordaining hands having been laid on us to make us bishops. So in a lot of cases, we need to be very gracious and merciful towards our bishops. And instead of railing on them and picking on their decisions, get on our knees and pray for those who lead us, that they would lead us in the right direction, and that even when we make mistakes or when they make mistakes, that we would learn from them and and become humble and be good followers of Jesus Christ and do all things to his glory. Um, but like you, like we've been saying all along, it becomes so easy just to rail against the leaders and to think we know better. I mean, look at our society, too. Look how much people like to rail on their civic leaders, on our civic leaders, the people that God himself said that he has allowed to be in power. We rail against them. Look at all the slanderous things that were said about Donald Trump, all the slanderous things that are being said about Joe Biden. And we never, and most people would rather just slander these people than pray for them and to ask God to have mercy on them, which is diabolical. We want to talk something about something that we need to exercise from our lives. We need to exercise from our lives our, our pride that puts us above God's ordained leaders. We forget that he, as we've said already in this podcast, that he is sovereign. Well, I, and I think, to, I think the other thing that has to be said is, you know, until you've, until you've been, you know, it's kind of like when you become a new parent, people say that until you have kids, you don't really get it. Um, you know, until you've borne the weight of, of any office, you don't know what's involved. So, I mean, even at the level of parish priest, none of us really understood what that weight meant from day to day until it was upon us. Um, so there's no way we understand what the load our bishops are carrying is really. Um, and I mean, I have a, I have an excellent bishop. I, I love my metropolitan. Um, I know that in any given, I, and I know this much, and I can say this much with certainty. I know with any given decision that he makes, he has a variety of factors and knowledge in play going into his decision making that I'm not aware of. That is simply not my business. He knows things that I don't know. And he knows uh, details about situations that I'm not aware of. And that goes in, into making decisions that I, I, I'm, you know, I'm only privy to the portions that I need to be privy to. So again, you got to have that trust. You're like, if they're making judgment calls, if we trust them and we trust that the Holy Spirit is guiding them, this, we, we have to say, there's probably a good reason why they're making some of the calls they make. And we, it, it may not be in our pay grade. You know, we may not know why, and it may, it may not even be appropriate for us to know in some cases. In some cases, it might. And that's not to say that they never make bad decisions. And that's not to say that they are, um, that they are uh, above correction, because no human being makes perfect decisions, and no human being is above correction, however, comma, um, however, comma. We gotta have enough humility to go to to look and say, if I trust this person and I trust the Holy Spirit to lead them, then um, perhaps they are weighing data and details that I am simply not privy to, and and to have a measure of humility in front of that, because um, I know you know there's a lot of decisions here in the house that I make that are entirely necessary. My kids are not privy to the details. <laughs> You know, there might be some small, now as they get older, there might be some small portion of the whys and wherefores that they need to be in on, but there's going to be a lot of stuff that is simply not in their pay grade. And that's okay. Um, and that's another thing that's a very hard pill for us to swallow as Americans. We all think we're the subject matter experts, but then we also tell people to mind their own business. You know, so it's like, we all think we're the subject matter expert, but no one else is. 
So, yeah, I mean, there, 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 it's that, that lack of trust and that lack of humility. Um, it was ruinous in the garden and it's ruinous now. And it will keep us from being, it will keep us from, it, it will make us absolutely useless uh, in this lifetime. I've, I've had this revelation over and over again, and it is completely analogous to what happened with Eve in the garden when, when the serpent came to her. It came to her and inspired her to make decisions that were not within her purview to make. And I see myself with, and social media makes it so easy to do this on a daily basis. Like whether it be um, a commercial to help feed the children in Africa, to the suffering in Honduras, to the needs of China, or uh, you know, the thing that so-and-so said on their Twitter feed. Any one of those four examples, there may be injustice involved with in all four cases, but is it within my competency or is it within my purview to be distracted and take time from the things that I need to do today to, to be filled with anxiety or anger or fear or whatever to to reorient my life to to chase after that fruit on that tree or do i just need to keep my head down and say wow that's unfortunate god have mercy now back to my life of serving uh, in eve's case back to my life of of serving here in the garden and doing what i was created to do which is to to offer life and bring life in into the world right? And we do it all the time. It's so analogous. And it's really dangerous when, when we take our eyes off the goal and we are tempted to chase after things that are outside of our competencies and outside of our purview to deal with and to focus the lens of our eyes, of our minds on, on those things. It's completely destructive. It takes us out of the out of boot camp. It'd be like it'd be like somebody in uh, like you were talking once about jumping out of perfectly good helicopters and airplanes. They're they're two different things. And if you're airborne and you jump out of airplanes, but you're when you're doing your jump, when you're doing your jump out of that uh, C one thirty or whatever aircraft you're jumping out of, your mind is focused on uh, marksmanship training or the helicopter jump that you've got to do tomorrow, you're in the wrong place, man. Your, your training is not being fulfilled right now because you're out of, you're out of tune. You're not in the right place. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and that's, you know, the other thing is, it's like, well, how do you get more of that competency? Well, you actually do the program, you know, like, you can become like you could become a general. You could become sergeant major of the army. You could become a first sergeant. You could become a special operations operator. You know, uh, you could do all those things. You're not going to do it your own way. And doing all those things, the the weight of the office of all that added authority does come with a greater degree of freedom and say so and sovereignty in certain within certain spheres. But you get that by doing the program, by committing to the discipline, not by uh, just sort of saying, well, I'll make this up as I go along. You're going to go nowhere. I mean, the word discipline itself, that's, that's related in English to disciple, which means a student or a one who is taught. So again, discipline is a teaching. Uh, and, and the fact that our culture is so mired in throwing off discipline is scary because as much as we say knowledge is power, we actively push against the very uh, mechanism by which it can be obtained. Um, and, and it doesn't happen sitting on your third point of contact and reading about it. It happens by doing it. It happens by getting out in the field. It happens by being in the discipline and the exercise. Um, you know, it's like a kid saying that he knows anything about firearms because he's really good at Fortnite. No, that's, <laughs> that's not even the same animal. Even if you could name some, I, I think, 
I'm only tangentially familiar with Fortnite, but I, I think like there's some actual, in addition to fantastic, you know, fantasy weapons in Fortnite, I think there's actual ones that like are a version of something that exists in the, in the real world, like tactical shotguns and stuff. And with that said, like, just cause that kid could identify, oh, that's this doesn't mean they really know the first thing about it and that that it's called the dunning-kruger effect this i this sort of false competency that most people have and it's a real dangerous thing because that will get you killed that that will i mean spiritually and physically and that's the thing that'll cause you to make dumb uh make dumb prideful presuppositions that you know better i mean just think about that like i mean if if eve had looked at the if if Eve had stopped and said, well, maybe I don't know better. Maybe the God is trustworthy and I don't know better. Uh, you know, that particular temptation probably wouldn't have gone the way it did on that day. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think, but that's, that's, that's why when we tell people to, like I, when we tell people to, who are interested in orthodoxy or want to take the Orthodox faith seriously, yeah, I get a lot of people say, Father, what should I read? My first answer is come to service. <laughs> come to the services. Do the things. Do the orthodoxy. And then we will talk about books. It's not that information is bad. It's that the platform by which that information is useful is in the doing, um, is in the living it out. Um, I think we get into this this academic kind of uh sphere where knowledge and knowing is can and i think it's a lie that we've sold ourselves but knowledge and knowing is a useful replacement replacement for actually being able to do right i read in other words like i read a book about plumbing i know how to plumb and then you hand that person some wrenches and a torch and some solder and say well then couple that copper joint together and they're like what and the thing leaks all over the place. It's like, so reading wasn't a replacement for actually knowing how to do it. Do the thing. It's like, and coming to church and talking about kindness and talking about love and thinking about all the lofty uh, moral goals of Christianity and not going out into the world and doing them isn't good enough. It's not good enough at all. Yeah, and it's, and it's, uh, our, our, it's just easier. You know, and we, but what it, what happens with that overly theoretical academic side is ultimately when we, when we don't put the rubber to the road, there is at the base of it a contention that maybe these things aren't really real. Like, I don't really need to because that's not real. Like, I mean, if you uh, honestly, right, like, I mean, right now you've got, people across the world and let's let's not derail this but you got people across the world reacting in various ways to uh, the reports of the coronavirus right um or or like i remember ebola when i was a kid or whatever well i mean people who believe you know people who are faced with an illness they take they do certain things you know what whatever those things are they do them the fact that we can hear about the gospel and hear about God becoming flesh and destroying the power of death and angels and demons and illegitimate spiritual powers and then go back to just sort of living as if we had just heard a, 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 a story, you know, like it's not real. It doesn't flesh out into any real change. That What that really means is we don't think that was real because if you believed, if you really believed those things were real, it would color what you do um you know uh i mean to wit every soldier gets told they need to be prepared to be uh every soldier gets told that they need to prepare to be uh you know on the battlefield and they need to prepare for combat and until the early days of the iraq war i think we've referenced this before to the early days of the iraq war um a lot of soldiers still had the rear echelon you know, frontline mentality where if you were in the front lines, like infantrymen, artillery expected to fight. And if you were in the rear doing admin and paperwork, maybe not. And so you had in the early days of the Iraq war, you had some supply, a supply convoy got hit 
and the soldiers got taken, and then they were rescued. And the reason why the ambush on their convoy went the way it did was because their weapons were dirty and unserviceable. So when their convoy got hit, they couldn't fight. Well, why? Because the reality of battle wasn't something they believed was real. Like they didn't really believe that it involved them, that that was something that the, the 11 Bravos, the infantry was going to be doing that. I am supply. And we quickly learned that that is no longer the case, that everyone has to be ready to put rounds down and everyone's weapons need to be serviceable. And it is life and death. I mean, again, if you really believe it's real and imminent, that should color the way you step out of your AO in the morning. Um, so when we step out of our homes in a way that behaves as if we're functional atheists and behave as wish, as if God and Jesus and demons and angels weren't real, then whatever else we're professing on Sunday, that's what we truly believe. I that that's that that's the bottom line. We behave as functional atheists because we are. Um, we behave as materialists because we are. No matter what else we say. And part of the big task in front of orthodoxy right now is to, um, is to reset that very mistaken mind frame. Uh, but with that, Father, uh, I do, uh, I do thank you for recording today, and I th hope we've given our people a lot of great stuff to think about, and if nothing else, to approach the mess the chaotic circumstances of everyday life not as like just uh, disagreeable circumstances to knuckle under but instead as very real spiritual training for the kingdom which christ says not only is within us but also is to come uh and i would leave our listeners with the the example of the five wives and five foolish virgins the ones who happily enter the kingdom are the ones who were so prepared. And that, that command to be vigilant and be watchful, Jesus repeats throughout the gospel. So let's not be neglectful of it. Let's hit confession when we need to and drive forward. That's an interesting thing that you just said there uh, toward the end. of uh, We do a monthly teaching program here at the church. And we were talking about the effects of secularism on the church and how and how we can take and moralize our lives and say, well, I'm doing all the things that I'm supposed to do, all the things that people think I should do, and that is good enough, and that is my Christianity. And if we leave it there, that's not Christianity at all. It's it's secular atheism, like you just said, in the under the guise of Christianity. We have to we have to push forward, and we have to push into that space where it becomes uncomfortable, where where that ten mile run at three o'clock in the morning in the mud and the cold and the rain is necessary in order to get us prepared to do the things that we need to do when we're on the battlefield fighting uh, for the salvation of our own souls, for the salvation of the souls of the people in our families and confronted with opportunity uh, on the streets and in the spheres that God has placed us so that we can be competent in every aspect of the life that we actually live, not in the life of the imagined world that we've created uh, to have dominion over, but to actually have dominion and sovereignty in the real life that we are living here on the battlefield. Uh, Father Michael, it's been good again, like you said, to be together. Christ is risen. Uh, would you mind reminding everyone where they can find us online and on social media, my friend? Yes, of course. Uh, Anchor, you can find us on our main platform at uh, Anchor FM on the battlefield on Anchor FM, and of course, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, um, Google Podcasts, and on social media on the battlefield podcast. Uh, do like and share. Send in your questions and comments. Let's keep this a let's keep this a dialogue and discussion. Uh, and to wit, like today's topic was actually uh, was actually inspired from a suggestion that we got in from a listener. So 
you know who you are. I want to thank you for providing the inspiration. And um, I would encourage the rest of you to also write in with your thoughts. We do listen and we do take them into account. God bless you all. May the Holy Trinity bless and protect you always and grant you joy in the resurrected Christ. <music>